Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, for the music. We have Mike Hayes today as a guest. Chris Ying and I interview him for his new book, Never Enough, comes out Tuesday, February 9th. Mike Hayes was a commander in several SEAL team units, and we have a mutual friend that connected us, and I wanted to pick his brain about a a few things, about leadership, about personal growth over the past year. And, you know, as I got to know him, as I read his book, I was like, man, I want him on this podcast because we talk about a lot of different things on this show. And one of the things that is surprising is one of the most amounts of feedback we get is when we talk about coaching and evolving as a leader, as a manager. And one of the most popular podcasts we did was with Marshall Goldsmith, my executive coach, and people want to know more. And I have an affinity for learning about any kind of person that makes decisions under duress. It's one of the reasons why I love sports so much. I love, you know, when people excel when they're not supposed to. I love it when they fail, when they're trying to excel, when they're not supposed to, and they just continue to move forward. And Mike has a phrase in this book that I'll I'll never forget. It's learning to separate the signal from the white noise. And, you know, it's about compartmentalizing and focusing on the things that you can control. And listen, I, I love what he has to say. And I am a big fan of his, his book, is humbling. He's an incredibly humbling guy. He's accomplished an extraordinary amount. And a lot of this book is about memorializing in the best ways possible a lot of his fallen comrades. And this book is supporting a lot of gold star families. But even if you're not into the armed forces, even if you're not into these kinds of things, I hope that you stay, stay and listen because it's just about being selfless about improving yourself and about growth. But before I get into that, I wanted to talk about the San Gabriel Valley. Coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit amazon.com slash pureleaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I wanted to talk very quickly about the St. Gabriel Valley Alhambra, an area that I'm currently living in. We moved out here a while back because we were supposed to finish a whole slate of Hulu shows that we're filming with Major Dome Media. And clearly so many things have been postponed. But one of the things that I've been able to enjoy, as you've heard me on this podcast, is the bounty of Asian American and Asian food here in this area, the east side of Los Angeles. And I am in awe of the depth, the breadth, and the damn deliciousness of this area. Mostly Chinese, but again, Chinese food is not just this monolith. There's so many different kinds of specialty shops and restaurants that cook of different regions of China. It has Korean food. It has Southeast Asian food. The one thing it doesn't have amazingly, but there's a couple great spots are Japanese compared to, say, what Gardena and Torrance has on the Japanese end. But for like this amalgamation of many things about Asian food, it's pretty amazing. Once you add in the grocery stores, the Ranch 99s, the H-Marts, man, it really is like Nirvana for eating and for buying Asian food. And I can't imagine growing up and having this kind of selection. I just can't even imagine it. And if I did, I probably wouldn't even be me today. So much of how I grew was not having this acceptance. And it's amazing that we can have in this area 
some of the best food in all of America and as much praise as it deserves. And it does get quite a bit. And anyone in Los Angeles knows you come to the SGV area for amazing Chinese food. And it's not just the best in LA. It's some of the best food in America. I just don't think it gets the national recognition that it deserves. And in some ways, it's the same of uh, other places in North America. Richmond with Vancouver. You know, Vancouver has some great restaurants and some great Chinese restaurants. And man, the produce and abundance there is unbelievable. And I'm totally envious of it. But Richmond is where most of the best food is at. And in Toronto, well, I think it's the third or fourth largest city in North America, some great restaurants in Toronto. We have a restaurant in downtown Toronto, but the best food in Toronto is all in Markham, the suburb of Toronto. Yet, you know, when you look at the best of lists and all that fucking shit, rarely do these places ever make these lists. And it's like being relegated to the best foreign picture or these kinds of things where it's compartmentalized to something that has to be lesser. And I think that's not right. And as much growth and acceptance as Asian food has had over the past 15, 20 years, there's still so much more to go. And it's not just in Asian food and its acceptance in Asian culture, but clearly just identity and how Asian Americans are sort of seen on a national level. And this would be a, a weirdly inappropriate transition, but Amanda Wynn, if you have watched or witnessed on Instagram. She posted how there's been all all kinds of acts of violence against elderly Asian people, horrifying things, and it barely makes even the local press, let alone national press. And I think this is something that is more deep-rooted and something that needs to be brought to people's attention. And I know that we have a lot of Asian Americans that listen to this, but a lot of people that aren't Asian American. And just think about it. Think about, if you're old enough, how much Asian food has changed in your perspective and how you eat it and how you think about it. And a lot of that growth, while there's still a lot more to go and the ceiling has is much higher than ever before, that kind of growth is still not being seen in other parts of culture. It's not quite analogous yet. In film, yes, Parasite won Best Picture, but there's a lot more great artists out there that aren't in the representations. We've had some amazing Asian American artists, and it's always their fight to get sort of acceptance and other parts of culture that I think Asian American identity is just trying to sort of say, hey, you know, we're just like everybody else. And you know, we had a couple actors, Daniel Wu and Daniel Day Kim, that uh, helped amplify Amanda Wynn's Instagram post. And check it out. Um, a lot of this doesn't make the news in mainstream media because, you know, maybe it's racism. It's probably racism. But we need to start asking ourselves, like, how come? And it's not just the violence against Asian Americans, but this sort of... I don't even know how to call it. And this isn't the right form, I think, to talk about at the top of this podcast. And we should probably go a little bit deeper into it. But a lot of this stuff has been top of mind for a lot of Asian Americans since last year around this time when the Wuhan virus and that bullshit that came out and how a lot of Asians felt scared going out in the public because of the anti-Asian American sentiment. And... (sighs) It's there, guys, and it's just maybe people aren't talking about it because people don't know how to talk about it. But um, there's a lot of things that need to be resolved. And, you know, first and foremost, I think the violence against Asian Americans, particularly elderly Asian Americans, needs to stop. It's just unacceptable. Yeah, I I don't know what else more I can say about that. I just wanted to talk about it because um, I have this platform, and it would be wrong of me if I didn't talk about it. But strange transition to go back to this Mike Hayes podcast, but I think Mike Hayes would agree with me with the values that he has. Check out his book, Never Enough. Comes out Tuesday, February 9th. My interview with Chris Yang and Mike Hayes, former Navy SEAL commander. You know, I was introduced uh, by a mutual friend to Mike Hayes, a former commander of 
I don't know, the Navy SEALs. I don't know how you, you, you how many teams did you command? Two, four? I, I was at all of the East Coast teams over my career and then had command of SEAL Team 2 at the end of my career. Can you explain before we get into you as like everything for the audience, what does that even mean? <laughs> oh, man, I, I was in for 20 years. If I knew, I would tell you. Um, no, it's, it's, seriously, Dave, it, it, there's uh, you know East Coast and West Coast teams, roughly 200-ish SEALs. And, uh, you know, really good at figuring out what needs to happen in the world, work backward from the outcome. How do you organize yourself and how do you go do hard things in, in service of others? That's what the SEALs are about. And currently you're about to publish this book, Never Enough. And not just the important thing about your message is a good chunk of the proceeds are going to families. Could you explain a little bit about that? Love to. Thanks for asking, first of all. And, and, and let me also start with thanks for all your incredible you know, success and impact on the world. It's just awesome just to even be here with you. Um, I wrote Never Enough because in everything that I've seen and done, whether it's you know, military, government, you know, private sector, uh, I just kept keep coming across the same kinds of principles that, that I think can really just help any, really anyone, everyone, people, organizations, the country be better. And, you know, to kind of lift people up and and um, whether it's their lives or their organizations and just help people come together and make a better country, no matter who people are, their role, their place in life, skills, talents, you know, everybody can make a difference. And then uh, and then with that, to your question, I'm donating all my profits from this book to a 501c3 that I started that that pays off mortgages for Gold Star families. Those are, you know, fallen service members who leave behind you know, widows, children, and uh, just a huge hole in people's hearts. And so, you know, I, I, I just live a life of uh, trying to continue to keep those memories alive and help those families be uh, recognized and, and stable and, and able to, you know, rejoin communities and be happy and productive, just like they, sh- they should be able to. It's all about service to others. And service is a uh intertwined in, in, in sort of how you were raised and your grandfather. I mean, you're, uh, you know, I never had anyone that like willingly volunteered for the army. I think my dad had to in the Korean, Korean army. Like my, my brother-in-law served several years in the Marines, but the idea of service to me for your country is something that I have a hard time comprehending because it's like the ultimate sacrifice in some way of service. I mean, how do you, Talk about this to people. Like, why would you do this? And how come in this, you know, world we live in right now, do you think people understand the same values that when you signed up enlisted in ROTC? And is it the same values of service that you signed up for? Or is it different? And what does it mean to you right now? Yeah, great, great. There's a lot in there. You could take that a hundred directions. And so I'm excited to go in any of those directions. The the thing to me with with service is first of all recognizing that the world ultimately gets made better by avoiding conflict. You know, the the more product the less conflict we have, the more productive we can be. And I, I grew up, I'm 49. When I, I came into the SEALs, it was you know pre-9-11. It was uh, you know, like they like they say with the stock market, buy low and and sell high. I certainly you know, was was in the front door before I even really knew what what any sort of combat actually meant. And then, you know, once you go through real things in the SEALs, just like many, many, many SEALs have, the uh, your perspective changes as you go through that and as you get older and you think about um, how to avoid the uh, avoid the conflict. But then if you do have conflict, you win. You know, it, it, once there's a decision made to to go do something to make the planet better, what's our national decision making? You know, app, uh, machine says we're going to go do something. We win. And so, how do we as seals make sure that we're ready to go win on behalf of the nation? And that's ultimately means putting the um, things that need to be done before your own personal desires. You know, I've left my family. Um, I've been married for 24 years. My daughter's 19 years old. I've been away from them for six months or more, seven times in my life. And and that's, you know, it's not just a sacrifice on the service members part. It's, a, a ser- it's also a, a sacrifice on the part of the families. And so service is a really broad uh, theme in the military community. But again, I would just keep tying it back to the fact that it's ultimately about making the planet better. And, and just to, sorry to keep rambling one more one more second here, Dave, it's 
there, everybody's got different gifts and abilities. And so while I raised my hand for ROTC and to go you know, into harm's way potentially to serve the nation, everybody serves in different ways. And that's part of the theme of what I, I want to get across is that, is that we all can have impact through service. Service doesn't have to be military service. It can be service service. What, on like your spring break of sorts, you decided to sort of see what SEAL training was like. And I was trying to imagine myself, Chris, could you imagine on, a, on, on break being like, you know what, I'm going to voluntarily punish myself to see if this is what I want more of. Like, I, I think I would have been like, yeah, I don't think I could do this. What was going through your head when you were doing these like one week saw like training of, of, of BUDS training? Well, I, I don't know. How many decisions did you make at age 20 that you wouldn't make now? That's the real <laughs> question. So, you know, I, I think uh, the 49-year-old answer is different than my 20-year-old answer. But, you know, I, I think that um, in, in all sincerity, I, I believe that we 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 grow the most, most by leaning into hard things. And so I've tried to spend my life leaning into the hard things. Look, you're either going to succeed or fail, but it's only failure if you fail and don't learn, right? And so if you try the hard things, and you fail and you learn, you've actually, you've actually grown, you've learned, and, and you can ultimately pass. Wisdom is just a series of, of learnings from mostly the bumps and bruises you have in life. And then how do you pass those learnings on to others uh, is really thematically comes from what you just described. <laughs> Mike, can I ask you a question? So, <laughs> you know, you said you wrote this book because through all of your various life experiences, you've picked up these lessons that you feel can help anybody become more productive, more fulfilled, just do better at what they're doing in life. Uh, you know, you have commanded SEAL Team 2. You've run many, many meetings in the White House Situation Room. You've been a White House fellow. You've had a super successful career in the private sector. Uh, I mean, are you looking at the rest of us just like, come on, guys. <laughs> Come on. Like, what's wrong with you all? Like, come on. You know, Chris, I cringe at even the question. And the reason is because, um, no, I'm, I'm as imperfect as anybody who's listening to this, you know, and, um, and, uh, look, we all have our own things that we either, you know, work through or fall flat on, but like in life, many people do, they, they end up talking more about their success than, than they are failure. I don't know. Every time I go to, you know, Vegas or play blackjack or whatever, all I talk about is the money I won. I don't talk about the money I lost, but the, <laughs> but the point, the point, the analogy really is the human brain tends to move to, to remember the things that we're, we are good at, that we like, that we want others to see us for. And I think a lot of the learning really is in the other side of that coin. Look, I wake up way too early on, on several mornings and thinking about, you know, friends of mine who aren't here and, and, and thinking about, you know, a family member that doesn't have, you know, my friend in their life anymore. And, and I say, I'm a, I'm just, a, man, I'm how, how much of a failure am I? I haven't even checked in on that person in six months. And that's not what I stand for, but like life gets busy. And it's just like, there's a, there, I could tell you, Chris, thousands of ways that I fall short. And I never, I think a lot of another thing that, that is important in, in your question, your good question, by the way, I'm not giving you a hard time. The, um, <laughs> the, the good question, it's, it's thinking about um, about who who we want to be and who we are and being OK with who we are and always aspiring to do more, but also not not um, being being excessively disappointed for the millions of things that we're not doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of joking, but Dave called me after he met you <laughs> and he called me immediately after, I think, and was like, Chris, I just had like the craziest conversation with this guy, Mike Hayes, who put everything in perspective for me. <laughs> like I just thinking about the things that he has overcome. And like, you know, I, I think he was really moved by the philosophies that the two of you share kind of leaning into the hard things. But Dave called me and was like, my problems aren't shit. Like I can overcome this because I spoke to this guy. So, I mean, I'm kidding, but I, I really think that was the feeling I took from your book too, was, oh man, like if he, he can overcome these things, if he can overcome seal training, hell week, all of this stuff, like I can get on the Peloton, right? I can do a little ride here. <laughs> yeah. It's, but, but it, like you said, it's also about not being judgmental, right? It is, I grew up in an era in the seals where it was very, very much perfection or, or you're wrong. And, you know, I spoke at a seal graduation, gosh, maybe six years ago where I really said to the, to the, to the new graduates, you know, asking for, for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. 
And I think the world has gotten a little bit better at being more vulnerable, if you will, because, you know, we, the faster we learn that we're all imperfect and we, we need help at different things and none of us have it all figured out, I think the more we can all live a, a, a more a happier life, a more meaningful life, a more impactful life. And so it's also like not judging others when they have their imperfections and thinking, how, how can we just help them? I know if you share something with me, then I might have an idea to help. If you don't share it with me, I'll never be able to offer you any sort of like thing that, whether an idea or a person you should speak to or, or whatever. Chris, cause you know, the thing that resonated with me when Mike and I had our conversation was, I was like, oh, a lot of how I think is worst case scenario. And when I put it into context of worst case scenario, it's always, are you going to die? And if it's not death, then everything's pretty damn good. And as long as you're not hurting anybody else, everything's okay. And here I am talking to Mike, who's almost died, not like maybe, like literally almost died several times and has lived to tell about it. And it's never been a like post-traumatic stress disorder. It's been post-traumatic growth. And you're able to sort of see things for what they are. And it's never, I think, diminished his ability to move forward from failure. And I thought that was incredibly powerful for me uh, to hear that, okay, if you think that bad things are going to happen all the time, then it's going to be worst case scenario all the time. And you have to learn to compartmentalize it. And who better to talk to than a, a, a someone that's trained and actually goes through any kind of mission thinking that if you don't think worst case scenario, bad things are going to happen. So you have to plan for it. So how do you do two things that are diametrically opposite simultaneously? And it's important for me to like, I'm, I, I learned better, Ying, as you know, from hearing it from someone else rather than necessarily reading it. And your conversation was very impactful for me. Well, no, thank you very much. I do appreciate you saying that. And it was equally, if not more impactful, what you shared with me. And so two-way street, my friend. But the, uh, I think just for the, to, to, to share with the, the larger group, I think that really a lot of people will not trace a, a potential negative outcome all the way to the end. You know, we don't lean into hard things or, you know, get on the Peloton for Chris because we, we don't, <laughs> we, we don't think, we don't think about that last tactical 10 yards, you know, and said differently, uh, when we're going to try something hard, a lot of times we don't take it on because we're, we're, we're afraid of what our friends, our family, our colleagues, our peers are going to think about us. And if you really step back and say, who's going to think less of me if I try this really hard thing? And if somebody will think less of you, they don't belong in your life. Mm -hmm. Cut them. Like, who cares about that opinion? The people who actually care for you are not going to think less of you if you try the hard thing, fail, and learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's easier said than done. <laughs> for, for sure. No, but big time. Yeah, big time. It's definitely theory. It's hard to practice. But I kept on trying to put myself in your shoes because uh, that's not really possible. But I'm trying to because it's it's taking that philosophy and putting it to true, pragmatic, real life experience. And as a commander of people, like lives are on the line. And and I was like, it 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 was illuminating for me to see how maybe trivial some things are in my life or having that clarity allows me to get a different perspective. And when you have that different perspective, you get out of your own way. And I think throughout your book, it was important for me to read. There's, it's a very subtle, they're very subtle, I think for me, where it's a situation and you think about it quickly and you make a decision, could be good, could be bad, but you're doing it because you're always empathizing other people first before what you think is you know, the ultimate goal. And I think that's a complexity that a lot of people don't understand when you're actually doing something. Because when you're doing it yourself in your head, it's hard to take real data from other people into account. But when you're in the moment and you're actually doing the work, and we talk about a lot on this podcast of editing in your head, it's a lot easier to edit when you're actually in the moment doing it and you're seeing real shit happen. And I just kept on thinking throughout the book. I was like, oh, I could actually really relate to that. Even though I have no idea what it's like to actually be in your shoes. 
Because if, if what I'm trying, I'm just trying to basically explain that I think your book is a lot about empathy as a leader um, and making decisions that could blow up in your face, but you're not trying to, your, 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 your intent is pure, even if it turns out to be wrong. It, that is the most important thing that you're hitting on, which is the foundation. Look, we've got the rest of our lives to build walls and roofs. Let's always work on the foundation, right? And, and the humility aspect that you're describing is what enables the, the freedom, the liberation to go try the things where you may fail. You know, I, personally, we all mentor people that are a lot younger than us at this point in life. And, um, and you know, what I say sometimes to them is, is think of your career in three phases, Number one is you're trying to learn something really well foundationally. Number two, you're trying to show the world how good you are at that thing and trying to prove to the world that you're, you're, you're great. And then the third phase, which a lot of people never get to, is that you have such confidence in, in the fact that you are good, that you have no fear about worry. The, you know that the world knows you're good. And therefore, you don't need to prove it anymore. And, and you can, you're fine standing in front of a room and saying things like, I don't know. Or, or, or not being embarrassed to make the wrong decision and then backtrack and say, I made a mistake. That's when you're truly effective. And, um, and that takes that humility. And, you know, one thing that I've found, in, certainly in my life, and I think a, a lot of people, I'm sure you, I would guess you, you've had this too, Dave, is, you know, you've got a lot of confidence. You are a world-class person. And so, and you, and you should know that by now. You have a ton of confidence. And so sometimes people confuse confidence as arrogance. And so the thing is, like, how do you cons- how do you actually separate confidence and humility rather than just being two points on a line, you know, confidence and humility? It's actually two separate axes. And so how do you live in that confident yet humble quadrant? And that's the thing that I think a lot of people kind of kind of don't separate out. And, and if you have that that humility, you have the open mindedness in your head that you might be wrong. You, you, you get you, you, you get liberated in order to go do great things. When you were not yet a commander or a leader and you were still sort of, I mean, beginning your SEAL career, did you see leadership, you've seen leadership in all its forms, but is it always the case that a bad leader is arrogant and refuses to show vulnerability? Can you still be a good leader and have these, Not they're not negative traits, but like is different now and are all the best leaders in your military career highly empathetic and able to make decisions under duress at a high level? Yeah, there's a lot of attributes in there. I think that it's not binary for sure, right? And so, however, I think it's highly like causal between effective leadership and being able to stand in front of people and have that empathy. And not just like, like empathy briefs well on a PowerPoint slide. I mean, the difference between being PowerPoint empathetic and real empathetic is is very different. It's actually (laughs) understanding what really motivates the people that are around you and what triggers them. You know, I think, you know, if if we really went to the whiteboard, we could think that we're all motivated by basically the same things. It's, you know, quality of life, opportunity for impact, maybe learning in a job, promotion, compensation, public recognition. There's six things, quick count. I bet you if we got to 10 we cover pretty much the landscape and people all appreciate different dimensions of different ones of those. And so how do we connect, understand what motivates different people and recognize that, that things that we like are not necessarily the things that others like and use those motivations that people have in order to go achieve common objectives. You know, I imagine in a restaurant, like there are, if you, 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 in your world, uh, you probably got, you know, 10, 10 different people are motivated by those 10 things. How do you get them all moving in the same direction? Well, exactly. And, and, and the hardest part about being a leader, particularly in the restaurant, and I'm saying from your perspective as well, is how do you learn this stuff? Because, you know, reading it, yes, you have had moments where someone's like correcting you when the mistakes that you've made, like when you're in buds or something like that. But for the most part, all of your intuition of leadership, it seems to me that you were the catalyst to trying to be a better leader. And I find it incredibly difficult to to communicate that as to purpose. And clearly, one of your purpose in life is to serve. Do you feel that service is like nature versus nurture? 
Because even if you, if you don't want to serve, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it's a specific kind of person that makes a great leader. And, and from what I gather in reading your book, a lot of the leaders are like what you, you would never expect them to be the best leader, right? They, they have different attributes than what culture seems that would make a great leader, right? Like a cook, for example, in a restaurant, when I started, you would think the, that the chefs that were the best chefs were the best cooks, Oftentimes they weren't. So oftentimes the best technical cooks turned out to be the worst chefs because they didn't know how to communicate to people that were mere mortals to them. And I wonder if that's the same thing in your career where, you know, who takes the time to teach everyone how to communicate, be a better leader, to be more empathetic? Because from my perspective, it seems like you were a self-starter in that. It's a great topic. I, I believe that there's an element of nature and nurture. So I, I think the way I think about this is that there's some cone of possibilities that we all can land in between in, in different talents. You know, like I'm not going to be in the NFL. I'm at, I'm below the, like, I'm going to be, I'm the lowest of the low on that cone of playing NFL football or, or, or being, you know, uh, a cook at Momofuku, you know, like that's not going to be me. It's not my gift. The, um, the, the thing is though, through time, we really do learn. And so, but we learn more when we are reflective and objective about ourselves. And I think that one, that's one thing that I have done since an early age is not to just finish something and say, okay, what could I have done better? But to also think about the deeper why and say, say, say why, and how will this apply again in the future? I like to say that, that leaders don't teach people what to think. They teach them how to think, you know, when we come off of an operation, that could have gone been front page of the news and completely awesome. We don't spend time talking about what went well. Inertia is going to keep that going well for the next time. The, the re highest return on the investment of time is really talking about what didn't go well. And a lot of people will say, well, I came out of the building and turned left and then turned right and zigged and then zagged. Well, I don't care if you turned left or right or zigged or zagged. You're never going to be in the same situation twice. What I want to talk about is what was going through your head when you turned left? What was going through your head when you turned right? What did you see? What were you, what was the, what was the through time experience? What were the, the kind of the, the higher level principles around why you did what you did? That's the stuff. If you have a conversation at that level, that will be applicable again in the future. And that's where, that's where that return and that compounding of knowledge really does happen. And that's what gets you better and better. The thing is, the, the other thing in there is being objective about yourself. Not being afraid to say, hey, I totally screwed that up. You know, a lot of us, when we were young, our parents paid money for coaches to, to yell at us and tell us we weren't good enough at soccer or the piano or whatever the case may be. Like, but now as adults, we don't want people to tell us we're not good at something, right? It's a, it's a little bit of an allergic reaction when somebody tells us we're not good. But if you really stop and step back and think about it, that's actually a gift if it's delivered the right way. Because then you can really have that objective, reflective moment. And then to your point, get better and better through time at whatever it is you're talking about. You know, the very beginning of your book, you talk about a story um, from, I think, 2012 when you were in Afghanistan, when you sort of reinvigorated this reconciliation program. You were you were in the field in Afghanistan and you started rather than kind of approaching it with, I don't know, more of a, a forceful approach. You were reaching out to the local community because you had recognized what you talked about. Everyone has common interests. You know, what, what motivates people on, you know, quote unquote, the other side of even an armed conflict or war is the same thing that motivates us. Quality of life, opportunity for promotion, all of the things that you listed, the six or 10 things. How did you arrive at that decision? Can you tell us a little bit about that story and just how, how did it occur to you and, and your, your colleagues, your team, that maybe you would be more effective uh, speaking to the, the local priorities and, and needs rather than trying to just uh, accomplish it a different way. Yeah, that's a, it's, uh, thanks for asking that. There's a, there are two key, key points to that. Number one is when I was growing up, I would think a lot about just the ex execution. What's the mission? What's the mission? What's the mission? As you get older, you, uh, you step back and you say, wait a minute, what, uh, what's the vision? Where are we going? What's the strategy? Meaning how are we going to get there? then what's the execution? And so as you get more and more responsibility on your shoulders for more and more serious things, then you start realizing that the biggest risk in an organization is not actually the execution risk. The biggest risk is having the wrong vision or having the wrong strategy. 
And so how do you tease out in ways, how do you, the, the, the best vision and the best strategy so that you're all aligned and going in the same direction? So that's, that's the first point. And the second point is, as you see more things go wrong in life, you start realizing that, you know, the, the, the 21 year old mentality of like, let me, you know, you know, do really awesome on the mission and, and go win some big award and, and, and get my, my combat action time and, and whatnot. But as you get older, you realize the goal is actually to achieve an outcome, but and take the least amount of risk necessary to achieve the outcome. And so as a leader, what I'm doing really is just thinking about vision and strategy. And, and, and by the way, that's not me in my own head. That's me facilitating a process to land on the best vision and the best strategy, and then using leadership to make sure we're all coalesced around what that is. I think that that's, that's something that Dave talks about. You know, I've recognize Dave's ability to oftentimes like I'll go off on a flight of fancy and say, Hey, be really, we should do this thing this way. We should go, we should pursue this project or whatever. And and one of the things that Dave has taught me over the years, like working with so closely with him, he'll so often be like, did you forget what we're trying to do? (laughs) Like, that's not, I mean, that's cool, but that's not moving in the direction that we've all mutually agreed is our our objective. And, And it is really hard to lose sight of that. And I think, you know, you brought it up in terms of, um, trying hard things. A lot of this has to do with ego, embarrassment, just wanting to like maintain a certain perception of who you are as a, whether it's a soldier, a cook, an employee, whatever it is. And being able to separate that, I think is, you know, again, I think there's a lot of commonalities in, in your two philosophies. Well, it, it's what my economics professor said in grad school. Beware of fast trains to the wrong station. <laughs> You know, a lot of us are just going to get on that fast train and going, how do we, how do we move fast and go, you know, with a lot of energy, et cetera, slowing down to think about the, the, the place we're going to is the most important thing. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Everything that you're saying ultimately to make the right decision, it seems, in moments of duress or planning stages or whatever, is to actually not do what you think you should be doing or your default setting or that there's another level that you haven't reached yet. And again, all the physical training when you're you're doing your buds and seals training is teaching you like, actually, you think you can't do it, but you can do it. Right. And, and you're, you, it's not just your social construct or your mind telling you, it's just, it's just your natural way of telling you that what you think is possible is actually not true. And I find that to be the case in cooking, in me being a dad, you know, you and I talk about this a lot, like how I'm supposed to react to my son when he makes mistake is not how I was raised or my initial reaction. It's not to get angry. It's to be calm and to, to be cool headed and, and to teach from that angle and it seems to be some kind of special forces training that you've been through just hammers that home. Because if you don't understand that, you're going to wash out. Yeah, it's and this is where understanding the gravity of the situations that you will be in when you're when you're starting out in training is is actually helpful because you understand that you have to be that supercomputer in the moment and say. What is going to maximize my probability of success in this moment? And any sort of negativity or friction or unnecessary negative emotion only degrades your ability to perform in the moment. And um, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Mac guy, not a, not a Windows guy. But when, those, but on, on the, when Windows pop, when you got the window pops up that you have 4,000 things running and you got to close some stuff down and you look <laughs> at that list and you're like, what the hell are all these things? I have no idea. 
that are chewing up bandwidth in the background, like that, like 87% of your processor is going to something that you have no idea what it is. That's kind of a parallel for when you're in those hard situations. You, you don't even realize those unnamed things that you really don't understand what are happening in the back of your head, but they're chewing up bandwidth. How do you, how do you instead hit the little X, close those boxes off so that you can put all of your effort and energy at the problem at hand? Can you, again, you identify this uh, in your training. And I, I, again, I don't know why, but I just felt like I could relate this to me as a person in all the different ways. But when you are on a training mission and you hit the beach and you realize that your three partners weren't with you and your reaction is who you are is like, I gotta, I gotta not be a hero, but I want to help. And you decided to look after them and you've learned that was literally the worst thing you could have done. (laughs) But that's what I mean. It's, it's like, how do you, is there any way to download that kind of intuition or learning without actually having to fuck up like that? No way. You got you got to <laughs> screw up over and over and over to learn. And 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 hopefully you set up situations where you're you're making your mistakes in non-life and death situations, right? It, I, I like to say that that organizations can't fail, but individuals can. And so how do you build a situation where we allow individual failure but organizational success? And that's a tricky thing. If you could go back into that moment and maybe set it up for the the the, the audience, and I don't want I want people to read the book, so if, this is why like it's a small tidbit uh, story. Can you set up that story of why you were in the water and what happened, and if you were in that situation again, what would you have done differently? Absolutely. the The quick version is we were off the coast of Florida, just testing some new equipment. When, when can something get picked up by a, a technology solution that I won't go into? But the, what it required was four of us in a boat, uh, out at sea, getting out of the boat and then swimming into shore with some stuff and then getting to the beach, waiting there for 30 minutes so some people could test some stuff. And then, then the four of us swimming back out to the boat. Well, as soon as we got uh, on station and out of the boat to swim, we got separated right away. I mean, the winds were like, I'll tell you, the winds were 3000 miles an hour. The waves were 400 feet high, you know, like every single story, you know, the water was 33 degrees. It was raining and snowing at the same time. No, but in all seriousness, it was really, really bad conditions. We got separated right away. We all swam into the the beach. I got to the beach and couldn't find anybody else. It, It was a long, probably, I don't know, two, two and a half mile swim, something like that. And then when I was on the beach, I was looking around going, where are the other three guys? And, uh, and I was like, well, okay, they, maybe they already hit the beach and, and swam back to the boat, maybe they, whatever. So the, the instructions for that, that training event were to go swim back out and get to the boat. So like being the dumb new guy, not really thinking and just trying to, again, like what we said earlier, just focus on the execution and not necessarily the higher level thinking. I just got in the, in the, in the ocean, in, in the, back in the ocean and just started swimming back, you know, halfway through, I broke a fin strap. So now I'm swimming with one fin. I'm carrying some heavy stuff. We're doing our side stroke, extreme, you know, dehydrated, uncomfortable, cold, miserable. And then I'll never forget this uh, about another 10 minutes out. I, I got bumped by, I'm going to say something at least eight and maybe 15 feet long. That was like gray. I don't know if it was a dolphin or a shark or what it was. I really, I won't exaggerate, but it was something really big. I got moved about 10 feet in the water. And the only thing I was thinking was I'm going to get eaten and everybody's going to think I was a bad swimmer. You know, like, like, and so it was like one of those moments where you're like, I'm either going to live or die. Like there's, I don't have a lot that I can do here. The thing went away. It never came back, never bothered me. I just kept swimming, looking for the boat over and over and over. And ultimately the boat was not there because everybody else was smart enough to not do what I did. And so at the end of it, you know, I I caused everybody else a lot of unnecessarily frustration and concern because I wasn't on the beach and they were looking for me and, and, uh, and, and I wouldn't, it was the wrong thing to do. And so to Dave, to your larger point is when you're done with something, how do you not just brush past it, but how do you actually pause and think about what would I do differently? And if your whole life you're in the situations and you say, what would I do differently? And you think about what you would do differently. That's how you grow. And that's how you get better through time. That's the, um, that's the nurture part of the nature versus nurture question. What, what I thought was really interesting about the telling of that story in the book was uh, at the conclusion of it, you say, 
there's a version of this where I can blame my teammates. I can blame the organizers of this exercise, this test for, you know, not alerting me, not telling me not to go back out there. But I chose to examine what I did wrong and, and, and put it on my shoulders, which was, I thought, the most instructive thing. Because I think that's the, the temptation, especially when you've been through hell for no reason, is to say, why did you guys make me do this? It's kind of the human condition, right? When things go sideways, we like to think that other people are more wrong than we are. The learning isn't in that orientation. Even if somebody else is 99% wrong and I'm 1% wrong, I'm only going to learn if I think about my 1%. Now, I might Mm -hmm. be 99% wrong. It's probably closer to the truth. But the the (laughs) point is pointing the finger at me first and saying, what would I do differently is, is is the trick. If you can change your mind to point at yourself first, do that thinking, then you can get to what the, the other's aspect of it. And, you know, Dave, you talked about we're, we're both parents. You know, it, I fall short many times, but I, I think to myself, I've tried to think when, with when raising my daughter, who's 19 year, years old now, I've always thought like, okay, could I have communicated better? Could I have said something different? Could I, and, and I've found along the years, many times the, the, you know, in some of those difficult child moments, you're like, oh, if only X, Y, Z and thinking about others, but you're really, uh, I find that the, there's more, there's more learning in the, 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 what could I have done differently question? You know, the, the craziest thing, and this is going to sound totally insane, but hearing you reading the book and I was a religion major and yes, you know, I, I, you know, Catholicism is a big part of your life, but you know, I've been, in quarantine, rereading a lot of books that I haven't read since college and and whether it mostly things on Buddhism and Eastern religions, even a martial arts book on the master key of wisdom. It's it's like all it's just stuff that I would never have time to read. And the thing that I can keep on going back to is everything you're talking about in your book is the same thing you find in the very best of religions or philosophies. It's be selfless learn from your mistakes, be kind, be generous, have gratitude, be humble, pursue excellence, but that excellence isn't just for you, it's for everyone else, be the rising tide. And I'm just like, how come this is still so hard to teach? How come it's still so hard for this to be accepted by more people? Because it's not just one religion or one philosophy, but it seems to me to be something that's a common thread in the very best of us as humans? I think because it's hard to do. It's really hard. It's really easy to get the theory right and agree in theory to things. It's hard to do the work. It's hard to get on that Peloton. <laughs> and so, you know, it's really, it's really a commitment and a discipline to, to, do, to, to point at yourself first, just like we were just talking about. And so I think the... The, the art form here is really starting with the who you want to be. And look, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm as imperfect as anybody listening to this. It's really easy to espouse these, these grand theories and, and things that you just said too. Uh, but I will tell you that from experience over and over and over, do, helping people when there's nothing in it for me has been incredibly rewarding in the moment but it has also come back and paid dividends many, many times over when that was not the goal. I mean, Dave just, you know, you just said, Dave, right now, due to the circumstances around us, you've found yourself with more time than you've had in probably the last two decades to reread some of those books, maybe more motivation than ever too. You know, Mike, so much of your book, your philosophy stems from, or goes back to these stories of training of being in Hell Week, being in Buds, like just basic training. A lot of your stories are, are amazing, have to do with like being out in the field, but so much of it is during these exercises. And I think a lot of this has to do with that, right? Like the, that that's the thing that, not that it's a luxury to get through, to go through SEAL training, but in, in a lot of ways, that training is the opportunity, right? To, to before you get to, it's hard to do things in practice in the real world, you know, like you said, Dave, it's hard because young cooks don't have an opportunity to sit and read the philosophy books, to think about what's right and wrong, to practice moral philosophy before it comes to play in, in the field. And is that what you, I mean, is that, is there truth to that, guys? Like I, that, that it's about, <laughs> it's about practice, honestly? Well, I think it's also about appreciating that, that 
that seeing the metaphor when you see SEAL training, I've written this book in a way that it's a metaphor for whatever somebody else chooses to do. First year in a kitchen, first year teaching in a classroom, first year investment banker that's getting ridden hard by the partners who've been investment bankers for two decades. Like, like no matter what, there's a crucible to go through. And so the question that you really, in that first phase of the career that I was talking about earlier is, do you want to, do you want to work hard and learn? We all have a setting on a dial. It's like, how hard do we want to work to learn? If we assume that, that work equals learning, we have a fundamental question of, of who we want to, who we want to be and how we want to be oriented. And, and, um, and the more we learn, the more we can also give back. I think, you know, the, I love the saying, the, the saying, you know, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. You know, Dave Chang is busy. You want to get something done, give it to Dave. He's going to knock it out of the park, you know, because that's the person who can juggle 4,000 balls in the air and still keep them all above ground, you know? And so, but the thing is with that busy person, one of those things is always mentorship. You know, I guarantee you that, you know, no matter, no matter what those fields we just talked about, the busy leaders are mentoring and helping the, the younger the younger, the people behind them in their, in the career tracks grow and become, uh, become better at what they do. And that goes back to that orientation of others before self, but then also selfishly, it makes your organization better when you mentor the young, the young cooks. I, part of this is you got to go through the training. And I think what you were talking about, Ying, was the practice. I always go back to my life or with the things that I've seen that have worked is, and what I guess concerns me with American society or the world at large is we're not giving opportunities to make mistakes anymore. It is, you know, black and white, you fucked up, you're done. And, you know, when you're training as a SEAL, you are almost always preparing, practicing. Worst case scenarios, best case scenarios, you're constantly putting yourself in situations where you can learn different perspectives and vantage points. And I think one of my concerns is, and I have to remind myself of this is my talent is making mistakes and, and hope, hope that I learn, you know, from those mistakes. And I think it's an incredible, incredibly difficult thing, not because people don't want to do that. We have, in my opinion, eliminated the ability to have that kind of practice to mess up. That's the problem of leadership though. And so if I'm the commanding officer of a SEAL team, and, and the SEAL platoon goes out for the night to, to, to go through a training exercise. If they knock it out of the park and everything goes perfectly, I'm actually frustrated because we wasted mm. time. The only learning, if you train to just success, you'll never learn. You have to train to the point of you learn in the failure. And so what we didn't do then in that case is set the training up hard enough so that there is there are elements of failure that we can talk about and learn from. And so the leadership, I believe what you're saying is a problem that we need to change more holistically and broadly is say, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be imperfect. It's okay. It's, it's not okay to not learn though. It's not okay to not give back. So at, when, when you're running your organizations, um, you know, how the question for all of us is, are we making it okay to have that failure? Well, you, Mike, would you mind telling that story from the book of, the training exercise where everybody ran in full uniform on soft sand for, you know, some ungodly amount of time and then had to do it again. And uh, just as an illustration of like lessons to be learned, whether you succeed or fail, like, would you tell that story? I'd love to. So in training, a lot of the evolutions, we call them, are timed. On this particular morning, it was easy. Wake up before breakfast. We're doing a two, a two mile timed run in soft sand, boots, long pants, and you, it's very simple. You just go run as hard as you humanly can. And in Coronado, California, when you're coming back, there's this, there's a rock jetty. And you, when you see that, you're like, okay, I'm almost done. You're at like minute, I don't know, 10 ish or something. And you're like, I've got another, you know, most of us in the sand, you're running in somewhere between 10 to 12 minutes uh, for two miles. And, um, and, and then you, you've given it your absolute all the instructors get the class together. And then they say, all right, you guys are the worst class that we've ever seen. <laughs> now, what we need to do is go do that again. So uh, ready, everybody line up, begin. And everybody, and you're just, you don't even have time to process it. So number one, it's incredibly demoralizing to have to do it again. 
And then number two is you go, you, you go as hard as you humanly can. And when you come back, they put you in two, in two different categories, people who beat their time. And then in a group, a couple hundred yards away, a group that didn't. And to the group that beat their time, you already know where the story is going. The, the group that beat their time didn't run hard enough the first time. How can you humanly <laughs> run harder the second time than the first time? Clearly, you don't have what it takes to be a SEAL because you should have done better the first time. And then to the other group, it's the opposite. You know, and, and so, uh, you know, you, you have to be able to dig deeper. And the second time you run, you have to be able to beat that first time. And so everybody's wrong. <laughs> but, but the thing is, the, what you're actually learning is how do you react when, in the moment when you have to go do that second run again? And how do you react and think when you're told that you're not good enough? And the thing that we're doing is, and that's that uh, a little bit of that emotional control that we were, that we were t- tangentially talking about earlier, Dave. Well, you know, no joke. It seems a lot like Asian parenting to me. <laughs> What you just described. <laughs> I was getting triggered. I was like, wow. I, know, I, I, know. Uh, I, I don't know why I can relate to this, but I, you do something, no matter what you do, it's not going to win over your parents. Yeah, yeah they're like, the result is irrelevant. There's some other, <laughs> there's some other Confucian lesson to be learned. That was the true point so of the So basically what I've learned so far is Asian parenting is basically Bud's training, and maybe uh, all of the Navy SEALs training is based on Confucius. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. I love um, it. So, we've got a couple Bud's instructors here. <laughs> uh, can I ask one other question that I probably should have asked at the very beginning? You know, the title of your book is Never Enough, and taken one way when people there's a criticism that that can be phrased that same way right it's never enough for you like there's you you, you never have enough money you never have enough fame you've never enough success like when is enough enough can you tell me and tell our audience what you're talking about when you say never enough absolutely love the question the title is intentionally provocative in that regard because ultimately right on the cover it says the word meaning and that's really what life is about, is meaning. It's, it's contributing to others. And if you take that, that mentality, then really all we're doing, everything else in life is to that end. How have we taken our own gifts, our own abilities, our own aspirations uh, in order to contribute more to the world in the ways that make the most sense for each individual? Th- that said, um, the, the never enough is absolutely uh, critical to say, if you're happy with where you're at, then you're, you're, you're going to get stuck. I like to say, you know, if, if excellent people are only excellent, if that they know they ne- they're never excellent enough. When you stop trying to be more excellent is the day that you are no longer excellent. So the absolute level doesn't matter. What matters is the spirit. You know, it's the spirit, it's the try, it's the will, it's the desire. Now, I, I, I tackle this absolutely head on in the book, but the quick version for the people listening is that we, look, we absolutely need to be super happy and comfortable and excited with who we are and what we've done in life. The, the, the two have to live together at the same time. And of course, in so many ways, we are enough. We have to be happy with who we are and what we've done because ultimately that is what the, the name of the game and what life is about. Is there a point where it's diminishing returns to have this philosophy, though, that it's not feasible? And by living this life, because it's such a high standard of living and it's so lofty that it can be demoralizing for other people because they can't be as driven or they can't see it as or care about it as much as you do. That's a great question. And so I would say at the highest level, well, what gives someone happiness and meaning and impact? So if whatever is going to give somebody uh, the, the, if somebody wants to sit on their couch their whole life and that's, what's going to give them meaning and impact, then they are being never enough, you know? And so it's kind of a little bit of a, of an oxymoron here, but um, we all value. I've been doing, I've been doing it all all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's the, it's the age old expression. I'd lift weights more often if they weren't so darn heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I think, I mean, Dave, I think what you're, you're talking about is personal, right? It's, I think you're driven in this way toward excellence. And you wonder if, you know, when you say diminishing returns, it's, it's like, 
there's a version of this where you're pushing so hard and you're hoping to drag the people around you with you. And maybe some of those people don't. Maybe some people are shooting for a different kind of never enough. Or you are, I don't know. It can be detrimental, I think. If you're, yeah, but if you're the pushing too can be too hard, right, yeah. Chris? Because the goal is to push appropriately. As soon as the push and the strive becomes inappropriate, you're no longer on that trajectory because it's detrimental back to the cause. It's kind of like in transformation in my role, like I'm running kind of operations and, and transformation for, for VMware. It's a large software company. The transformation that we're do, undergoing uh, needs to consider that pe- we as an organization and, and ultimately individuals can only change so fast. If we ask people to change too fast, we will be detrimental to the organization. How do you not lose a culture along the way? How do you not lose the incredible people uh, during a transformation? That's the key part of leadership is to understand where on that, what should the slope of that line be like? And it's the same thing with never enough, meaning uh, it, it, to, to Chris, your point, if the, if the slope is too steep, yeah, we'll be overall detrimental and we need to lower that slope. I think that that's, that's something Dave and I have talked about Endlessly, and and something that I, I know he struggles with. I know that he and I, you know, right before the end of the year, I think we both had this realization that we were enabling one another just to keep on pushing too hard, and maybe there it was becoming detrimental to try to just achieve that extremely vertical slope of of excellence, and and you end up like you said, and and you know, in the book, the the seals are team teammate self, right? It's you got to put the team first, and and. It's it's a balance. I, I think that that's that's the that's the struggle, right, Mike? Like, yeah, it's everybody wants a simple answer of do these three things and you'll be better. But there's lots of gray areas. Totally, it's where theory meets meets practice. Well, I think I could talk to you for forever because <laughs> this is exactly the kind of stuff that I love talking about. Um, it is exactly not just theory. It's it's something I still don't know quite exactly how to talk about, which is why I'm. I'm happy you wrote a book about it because there's a lot of commonalities in the things that I'm trying to be better at or learn about. And I don't want anyone to think that just because they know nothing about Navy SEALs or the military, that it, it can't apply to them because you did write this book so that it is um, easy to slot in and how you think about wherever you're at in life. That was the goal, Dave. It really was. It was how, how do we each take our own learnings from the trajectories that we've we've been on and the paths that we've walked, the the, the waters we've swum in, quite quite literally, to to share the learnings to people who have walked different paths or 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 done different things in life. Ultimately, it's about learning from each other. Like I, I would equally love to pick your brain and I don't have a podcast, but I'm going to start one just so I can ask <laughs> the question asker and get you talking. Although I will say I've listened to a ton of yours. And so uh, uh, I do uh. get that benefit, but uh, look, I, it, it's absolutely the case where, where we're all always learning together. Um, Mike, I wanted to thank you for, for joining us on this podcast and, and sharing with us so much wisdom and go, read your book, go buy the book or get the audio book, Never Enough by Mike Hayes. Um, There are a lot of similarities to this, to cooking, I think, and I'm sure a lot of other professions. And we had Preet Bharara on and his book, I thought was an incredibly accurate sort of portrayal of trying to be a, a cook in this profession of like restaurants. And that has all to do with law. And here we're talking to someone that was a Navy SEAL and a commander of Navy SEALs. And, and I find that there's a lot of similarities to cooking and, and excelling in this field as well. And I'm sure that, you know, I will go back to this book time and time again, but I, I just wanted to say there's not a lot of books about leadership that I think are applicable to people that are cooks. And I, and I think that this is certainly one of them. And, and for those that are listening and be like, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, remind yourselves that your entire culinary structure is based on the French brigade. So I think there, there are a little <laughs> bit more similarities than, than you might think. But uh, Mike, is there anything else you want to add? And, and I know you're about to go on a big book tour, but um, you know, I would just say thank you to you, you and Chris and 
for, for all of the success and impact that you've had, not just in the immediate people who you've touched, but through things like this podcast, your Netflix, your shows. Thanks for being real and thanks for inspiring more impact and, and positivity in the world. It's a real pleasure to be on here. And the, the cause of Gold Star Families and, and going to buy the book is, is really uh, appreciated that push. And, and uh, through that, let's all go get better together and let's share our successes and failures and, and points in between. And, and I'm always here to, to help in any way I can. And it's a real honor and pleasure to be with the two of you today. Thank you so so, so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. All right. <laughs> I don't know if I could have ever have had the toughness, the mental toughness to join the, the armed forces, but man, reading about people that do and the, the selflessness that someone like Mike, Mike Hayes has makes me more appreciative of, of the people that do serve and I very much admire any individual, which is why I like talking to someone like Mike and why I want to pick his brain is people that make great decisions under duress. And his life is full of very tough decisions that have massive consequences if done poorly and how he's able to compartmentalize and separate the signal from the white noise. That's why I wanted to pick his brain and hopefully it trickles down into some interest for you. But thank you, Mike. Um, check out Recipe Club this week. I'm not even sure which podcast uh, Recipe Club is doing today. Is it Graham Cracker? Maybe it's Graham Cracker. But I'm enjoying it now. I think we've got our groove on Recipe Club. Very fun. And give us five stars. Thank you for all those individuals that are writing in on the iTunes iPod page and giving us five stars. We are going to give you all a big shout out, but I can't tell you enough. Continue giving us five stars on that. And currently it's the only way we can get rated on podcasts, but um, stay tuned for another podcast this week. And if you're cooking New York City, please, please, please sign up and get your vaccination. Please. <laughs>